God planned my dad's death. I found those words in an article a few months ago. And the statement is shocking to many people, including many professing Christians. What are you talking about? God planned your dad's death? The author of the article I read goes on to say, I didn't know the details when I was a little boy, but I can tell you their death still crushed my heart. The incident reshaped my beliefs in a way that I didn't anticipate. Before this, I believed what a lot of you probably believe. When bad things happen, God merely allows them. And the author goes on to say this. He says, you know what my conclusion is? I don't think God merely tolerated my dad's death. I don't think he turned away when it was happening. I think he planned it. Otherwise, I don't think it would have happened. The man who wrote that article has a familiar name, and perhaps you know his story. The man's name is Steve Saint. His father, Nate Saint, was one of the few brave missionaries, along with Jim Elliott, who went down to that remote South American tribe to proclaim Christ to them. Steve Saint relates these tragic events. Maybe you're familiar with them. He says, Three women stepped out of the jungles on the upper end of the beach. Jim and Pete started walking towards them, while Dad, that's Nate Saint, and Roger hung back. They didn't want to scare them. Suddenly, members of the tribe rushed out of the jungles, and they positioned themselves to separate my dad and his friends. Then Gakita, which was one of the Indians in that time, he struck out after my father, saying, I'm going to spear the oldest one first. My dad was the one they recognized from the plane. Steve goes on to say, One by one, they speared my father and his friends and hacked at them, And then they did something even worse by their cultural standards. They took what was left of the bodies and derisively threw them into the river to be eaten by the fish and turtles. Now near the end of this article, Steve says these insightful words. He says, God promises a glorious conclusion to the story, not that every chapter will be pleasant or easy. And all of us who have read Scripture know that the end that we read even today in the book of Revelation will be well worth the wait and the pain and the trials now. But that doesn't remove the extremity and the pain of certain chapters in our own lives or even in the whole of redemptive history. The believer, you today, will have certain, certain pages of your lives with tear stains, perhaps even blood stains on them. Those precious saints whose stories are preserved for us in Scripture reflect that same truth. Virtually none of them were exempt from suffering that you read about in Scripture. But in all their suffering, God was accomplishing His purposes for His people's good, His people's salvation, and His own glory. Which leads us to Genesis 43, where I invite you to turn with me this morning. Genesis chapter 43. You can see on your outline, but the theme of our lesson this morning is God uses trials even severe ones, severe trials, to accomplish his purposes for his people's good, his people's character, and his people's salvation. Now we could read all the chapters from chapter 37 to 43, but instead of uh, doing that today, I want to share with you what Stephen the first martyr said when he was standing before the religious leaders. In Acts chapter 7, he says this, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, 
he sent our father there the first time. Now this is where the end of Genesis 42 comes into focus. If you remember, Joseph tests his brothers by commanding them to bring back their younger brother, to bring back Benjamin. When the brothers return home, they have to report that dismal news to their father. And if you look at the very end of chapter 42, the, first, the last two verses, picking up in verse 37, Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob, makes this outrageous offer to Jacob. He says, Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. And look how Jacob responds in verse 38. But Jacob said, my son, Benjamin of course in the context, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead, he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and sorrow. Which leads us to our text this morning in Genesis 43. Number one on your outline, the severe setting. The severe setting. And we see this play out in verses one and two. Why don't you read them with me? It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. Verse two. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. This exchange that's about to commence between Jacob and Judah takes place during this worldwide, intense famine. Now, the word used to describe this intensity is the idea of, of heavy. It's a heavy famine. It's a weighty famine. But nowhere in those verses that we read do we see explicitly that God is the one who caused the famine. But if you zoom out and look at the totality of Scripture... One thing becomes painstakingly clear, and that is that God is in control of everything. He has power over all things. From the swirling galaxies in the heavens to the natural disasters on the earth, all of them are under his scepter and his authority. Even the cold winter weather brought about by God is from his sovereign hand. Now, many professing Christians even shy away from that reality, but Scripture in no way apologizes for God's absolute dominion over all. Write down Isaiah 45, 6-7. Isaiah 45, 6-7. And listen to what God himself says. He says that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. In other words, God is supreme. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, which everyone wants to believe that part, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. But it's not just Isaiah. Amos joins his voice in with Isaiah in Amos 3.6. And he says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? Now listen. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? This morning, while we don't have time to enter into a discussion on the problem of evil, I want to commend to you a book I've read. If you're having struggles with that, you're trying to think through that, it's just called What About Evil? Super thick book, but super helpful at the same time. Very easy read. And it seeks to answer the question, if God has all sovereignty, if God is all wise, if God is all good, then why is there evil in the world? It's a very basic question. And in a nutshell, the solution that Scripture gives is simple. You see, God has allowed and ordained the entrance of evil into the world for multiple purposes. He does it to reveal His character, he does it to demonstrate his glory and to provide you and I, if you're in Christ, 
unspeakable bliss in the long run in a way that could not be accomplished had creation and the fall and all the ugliness of sin not occurred. I mean, think even of our text. If God didn't bring about the famine, Israel wouldn't have gone down to Egypt and they would have probably starved out. So you see, the famine is sovereignly brought about by God to constrain, as it were, Jacob and his sons to return to Egypt. But now we move from the necessarily severe setting in verses 1 and 2 to a necessary exchange that takes place between Jacob and his sons, particularly Judah, the compelling case. This is the first of two big movements in our text this morning. And within that, verse 2, we see Jacob's command. We already read it, but I want to read it again for context. Verse 2, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain while they, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Look at what their father Jacob had been reduced to. He's in need of one of the most basic necessities of human existence, food. If you read Jacob's life in the book of Genesis, you could make the argument that it was more arduous than Abraham and Isaac combined. But nevertheless, he also had such sweet tastes of God's salvation, of God's preservation. Remember, this is the man that was able to wrestle with the man, to wrestle with God all night, who wept and sought God's favor and found him at Bethel, as the book of Hosea says. This man was blessed with 12 children, a wife whom he adored, blessings upon blessings with his flocks. And he also had the advantage of seeing God's faithfulness to both his father Isaac and his grandfather Jacob. But near the end of his life, Jacob could look back on the entirety of his life, the peaks and the troughs, the mountains and the valleys, and with deep assurance of faith, say this about his God. He says, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, to this day. And some of you in here in Christ have seen God's faithfulness to you, and you can say that same exact thing that God has been your shepherd all the days of your life, even through the midst of the hardest trial or tragedy you've ever gone through or will ever go through. But you see, these physical and spiritual blessings from the hand of the Lord on the one hand, and these severe trials on the other, aren't mutually exclusive for Jacob. And they're not mutually exclusive for us either until that day that we have resurrected bodies and we're walking on the new earth. I mean, just think with me of some of the trials that Jacob went through. Jacob was tricked into marrying a woman he didn't want to marry and he didn't even love. I'm sure he had to deal with the habitual drama of four wives. The wife he truly loves, Rachel, dies prematurely in childbirth. His oldest son, Reuben, if you remember, defiles his father's bed. His next two sons, Simeon and Levi, they bring scandal and danger when they slaughter the men of Shechem. His daughter Dinah is taken advantage of, and at least in his mind, his son Joseph is dead. And now this other trial, trial upon trial, falls upon Jacob these past two years, famine. But you see, it was the effectual pressure of this famine that, as it were, forced open Jacob's mouth to tell his sons, go back and buy us a little food. It was this exact pressure that would eventually move Jacob and his sons back to Egypt. So I just want to remind you today, remind myself, if you're in Christ, just because your pain is sharp, even this morning, whatever you're going through, or your discomforts are strong, or the darkness around you seems to be pervading, 
and the hiding of God's face is seemingly persistent, even as you pray and pray and pray, that doesn't mean God's abandoned you. I mean, think about Joseph himself. In chapter 39, we see Joseph in the depth of depths and the heights of heights with his status in the world. He goes from a prisoner to a king. Now, was that an indicator of God's view of Joseph? Of course not. Was Joseph despised by God in the dungeon and then loved by God in the palace? That's foolishness. Of course not. Now, listen carefully. If lowly circumstances were an accurate indication of God's disfavor and were logically consistent, we would be constrained to affirm that every Christian martyr in church history is in hell. And no one here would affirm that. But that's how we as Christians many times can live when we encounter various trials in our lives. Too often we find ourselves acting and thinking like Job's friends. But I love, in contradistinction to all of that, what Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised. So many times we're surprised at our trials. But he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, it's precisely due to our trials that God accomplishes things in our lives that would not, that could not be accomplished otherwise. You see, God planned the death of Steve Saint's father. God planned the severe famine to encompass Jacob and his family. And God's planned even the most severe trials in your life that you have encountered, that you're encountering right now, sitting in this room, or that you will encounter. And he's given them to us purposefully to grow us in holiness and as a Christian, that's what we want more than anything anyway, is to grow in holiness, to be purged from sin, to have victory over temptation. He uses it to train us to be dependent upon Him, that we might find our everything in Him, that all our springs of joy would be in Him. I can't help but think of the song by Steve Green. Uh, anyone know who Steve Green is? Okay, Jeff does. Makes sense, it's from, it's from the 1980s, so... Um, <laughs> But Steve Green, in Steve Green's song, The Refiner's Fire, it's one of my favorite songs of his, the chorus goes like this, the refiner's fire has now become my sole desire, purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. Now, for Jacob and his sons, this famine of two years was their refiner's fire that they were sitting in. And while in that furnace of affliction, Jacob tells his sons, go back, buy us a little food. And we can picture all this playing out before our eyes. We see Jacob sitting down, decrepit, leaning on the top of his staff because of age. He's surrounded by his, I guess at this point, these nine sons, their wives, their children, his servants, perhaps hundreds and hundreds of people. We don't know. But Jacob points to his sons and he says, go back, buy us a little food. Now it's nearly impossible that the, fam the family was completely out of food at this point or that they had literally emptied the last grain from their reserves. The idea is closer to the food was beginning to be gone. Like in Luke 5 when it says that the nets began to break. They hadn't broken, but they were beginning to get to that point. I love what Calvin says about the patriarchs, he says, it's profitable for us to know these conflicts of the Holy Fathers that fighting with the same arms with which they conquered, we also may stand invincible, although God should withhold present help. Now from the midst of these brothers, we see one whom we've seen before in Genesis. 
Judah steps forth and responds to his father, which leads us to letter B on the outline, Judah's reiteration of Joseph's ultimatum. Judah's reiteration of Joseph's ultimatum. We'll pick up in verse 3. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brothers with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Again, notice who speaks up here. It's not Reuben. He attempts to do that in chapter 42. It's not Simeon. He's in prison in Egypt. And it's not even Levi for whatever reason. The first, second, and third order of the brothers. But it's the fourth brother of Leah, the brother Judah. Judah speaks up. The narrative of Joseph, of course, begins with chapter 37 and weaves its way through the end of the book. But the thread of Judah as well is weaved through the fabric of this section in Genesis and continues to wind itself through the whole rest of the Old Testament. Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember in chapter 37, Judah has a special hand in delivering Joseph from the murderous attempts of his brothers by having the bright idea to sell him into Egypt or sell him to the Midianites into slavery. You don't have to turn there, but in verse 26 of Genesis 37, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. That's chapter 37. But in chapter 38, we see Judah again as a focal point. <clears throat> we see Judah's fall into immorality. And that's juxtaposed to Joseph's withstanding of temptation in chapter 39. The birth of his twin sons. Joseph also has two sons that we see later. And we see the beginning of the specific line of Judah culminating with Christ. And in chapter 44, we haven't gotten there yet, but we see Judah yet again interceding for Benjamin in the courts of Egypt. So you see Judah's increasing prominence in this latter part of the book of Genesis. This chapter before us this morning, chapter 43, highlights yet again the uniqueness of Judah in this quickly unfolding drama of the sons of Israel. Judah states to his father the words of Joseph that they just know simply as the Lord of the land. Joseph hasn't revealed himself to them yet. So it's as if Judah says to Jacob, Dad, the ruler of the land was painstakingly clear. No Benjamin, no grain. If we go back, it'll be just a waste of time. Judah also repeats Joseph's words. Joseph says it twice. Judah repeats it. You shall not see my face. You will not see my face. And Judah is just as dogmatic in his father when he gives this ultimatum. He gives him two if statements. This ultimatum. If Jacob sends Benjamin with the brothers, then the brothers will go. Pretty simple. If Jacob doesn't send Benjamin, the brothers won't go. But Jacob doesn't even give in to this request or even rebut the ultimatum. He doesn't even interact with what Judah says. He simply says, verse 6, Jacob's critique, he simply says, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? Now you read that, that's not the strongest argument he can make, and it doesn't even really help the situation or further the plot. You see, no one likes being accused of something, especially if they're the ones in the right. Now, the brothers had treated their father poorly in the past. After all, they're the ones that betrayed Joseph in the first place. But in this particular case in Egypt, they hadn't done anything maliciously. And so, as we would expect, they want to defend themselves and they respond to their father. And notice, all the brothers merely address an irrelevant accusation brought by Jacob. 
Jacob goes off on a rabbit trail, and they follow him down that rabbit trail. Nothing is accomplished. All of them get derailed, except Judah. Judah does something different. But before we see what Judah does, look at how the brothers respond. They're righteously indignant of being accused. And so they say in verse 7, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So he answered his questions. Can we possibly know, he would say, bring your brother down? The brothers simply reiterate the interaction between themselves and the Lord of the land. You picture them getting exasperated. Dad, we've told you a million times. The Lord of the land asked this. We answered that. He inquired about our family, and we gave him an honest answer. Dad, you do the same thing if you were us. How are we to know? Remember, in chapter 42, and you can look at that with me, the very last part, Reuben's already offered to take Benjamin down, and Jacob refused. I thought this was interesting. Uh, In reference to Reuben's offering to kill his sons, one of the commentators I'm I read, mentioned that Reuben's speech to Jacob, it may have been well meant, but it kind of betrays a profane levity. Not only this, but Reuben had sinned egregiously against his father and thus lost his preeminence as firstborn. Jacob later describes Reuben as unstable as water when he's describing and characterizing the brothers at the end of the book. But sharply juxtaposed to this Reuben, we see his younger brother Judah, Both of them sinned in egregious ways. Judah sinned in an egregious way. Reuben sinned in an egregious way. But Judah repents. Reuben does not. Both brothers had plans of what to do with Joseph in chapter 37. But the brothers went with Judah's plan. Reuben fails. And even here, both of them appeal to their father. Reuben in chapter 42. Judah in chapter 43. Reuben offers Jacob to kill his grandsons if Benjamin isn't taken back safely. And perhaps even a violent streak in Reuben rears its ugly head that makes Jacob nervous, even in this request. Think about it. If Reuben could so easily turn on his own precious offspring in a flurry of emotion, that could be redirected towards Benjamin. Reuben, as Jacob said, was indeed unstable as water. But would Judah be any different than Reuben? After all, this was the man that initiated the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Had anything changed with this man for the past 13 or so years? Well, thankfully, amazingly, it had. Judah's request was vastly different from Reuben's. Whereas Reuben offered for his boys to die, Judah does something more noble, and I would argue, more Christ-like. Letter E on the outline, Judah's sacrificial and compelling offer. offer, This is incredible. Look with me at verse 8. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. Verse 9, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. So Judah responds to his father once again. But this time, the, the Judah changes his language somewhat, and this change is significant. Look back with me at verse 4 and 5. In verse 4 and 5, Judah says, If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. So in the first case, his statements are more general. He uses the, the pronouns we, are, us. 
But in Judah's second iteration, he takes on full responsibility, sole responsibility. Look at verse 8. He says, send the lad with me. And then there's four times in verse 9 this is mentioned. He says, I myself will be surety for him. He says, you may hold me responsible if I do not bring him back to you. And then again, verse 9, then let me bear the blame before you forever. So five times in these two verses, Judah heaps the language of personal responsibility upon himself. Observe again those two statements of Judah. He says, I will be surety for him. You will hold me responsible for him. And see what a change has happened in the heart of Judah. This is the same man who suggested betraying Joseph, and now we see him taking any and all blame for the brother of Joseph if he doesn't come home safely. I love how Matthew Henry says this about Judah in his commentary. He says, Judah's conscience had lately smitten him for what he had done a great while ago against Joseph, and as an evidence of the truth of his repentance, he would make some amends for the irreparable injury he had done him by doubling his care for Benjamin. Another commentator says, Judah's solemn decision to be surety for the younger brother marks the turning point in this struggle. Which leads us to Jacob's response. The impasse has finally been broken. Jacob's concession and trust in the sovereignty of God. Jacob's concession and trust in the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother in Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Jacob says, if it must be so. And indeed, it had to be so in God's providence. You see, Benjamin would be in danger either way, whether by the Egyptian's Lord or else by dying from the famine. Either way, it was a catch-22 for Benjamin and Jacob's mind. Now look at those verses again and notice the three things Jacob tells his sons to take back. The first thing he tells them is the best products of the land and then he specifies what those are. He also tells them to take double the money and then thirdly and most importantly to take his son Benjamin. Now the idea of the best products of the land is literally the song of the land. In other words, the things for which the land, in this case the land of Canaan, was celebrated, the best things. And regarding the amount of money, the scripture says it was double what was originally brought down to Egypt by the brothers. But why double? Well, based on what I researched, it was either due to Jacob's assumption that the price of grain had risen, or else to demonstrate a generous spirit, maybe both. But of those first few things, the best products of the land and the duplicated money, they were nothing to Jacob compared to his precious son, Benjamin. Benjamin was Jacob's precious cargo, his last living remembrance of his true love, Rachel. Joseph, in his mind, was already dead, and now all he had was Benjamin. So this would have been excruciatingly painful for any of you who are parents to have to depart with any of your children. But this harsh, severe, immense, heart-ripping trial 
was for Jacob's good and his 12 sons' good and our good, ultimately. If you remember in Genesis 22, just as Abraham was called by God to relinquish his unique precious son, God was providentially leading Jacob to offer up his son as well, his favorite son, his unique son. So Jacob finally does relinquish his son Benjamin. And praise God that he does. Look also at verse 14. I thought this was remarkable. In verse 14, Jacob says, May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. You know, God brings events like these in our own lives and sometimes very painful events, sometimes very confusing events, sometimes events that make us tempted to question the plan or purposes of God. But if you look at verse 14, how does Jacob console himself? The answer is very simple. Look at verse 14 again. It's the absolute power of God. Look what he calls God. He doesn't call them simply God or the Lord, as fitting as that would be. He calls him God Almighty. God Almighty. You see, the Almighty God has all ability to grant favor and compassion, to direct the hearts of mankind any which way he chooses. And for the person reading Genesis up to this point, they've already seen that about God. The very first verse of the entire Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with a mere word created all things. Just a few chapters later, you see God's power to wipe out an entire population with the flood. In chapter 11, the Lord single-handedly upends the construction of Babel. In chapter 39, the reader, and we ourselves, thankfully, have seen God's power granting favor to Joseph with Potiphar. So when we read the text before us and we see Jacob's prayer, we can simply smile and rest in the unbridled power of God over all things. Creation, and also the favor and disfavor of specific individuals. But he doesn't simply call out to God and say, God Almighty, and say the name and just hope God hears his prayer. He has a request. May God Almighty grant you compassion. I love this word in, in Hebrew. I had to do a word search on it. It's beautiful. It, means, it has the idea of, of compassion, bowels, tender love, mercy, pity. In some cases, it can be translated as womb. So Jacob was asking God to give the Lord of the land, Joseph, who we know to be Joseph, bowels of compassion to grant him pity for the brothers. Now what's, I think, incredible is that same exact Hebrew word is used several verses later to describe Joseph's reaction. It's translated there as deeply moved. Thus God answered Jacob's prayer exactly in the disposition of Joseph which should drive us all to pray more and to pray specifically for certain things. God answered Jacob's prayer specifically. And our prayers should be specific. General prayers are good, but specific prayers are wonderful because you can see how God answers those prayers. You see, this knowledge of God's absolute sovereignty is the only pillow of comfort in this whole situation on which Jacob could lay his head. Just as God planned Nate Saint's death to accomplish his own glorious ends, God's plan this famine to accomplish his ends with Judah and Jacob, his sons, and ultimately us. You see, Jacob didn't have countryside Bible church in mind when they were compelled to take Benjamin down to Egypt, but God did. Nate Saint didn't necessarily have other believers in mind when he was speared through, but God did. 
See, both of these events, as awful, as terrible as they were, were orchestrated by God for the greatest glory of his name and the greatest spiritual good of his people. I have here, he who has all control over weather patterns, and I just thought it was so fitting with what God did with the weather today. He who has all control over weather patterns, all control over natural disasters and famines, also has all power and control over the minds and hearts of man. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So we can have confidence that God has the ability if we just read what Scripture says earlier about Joseph. Over and over, God is seen as the one to grant Joseph favor. Favor with Potiphar, favor with a jailer, favor with Pharaoh himself. As one commentator said about Jacob, he said, Jacob had formerly turned an angry brother into a kind one with a present and a prayer, talking about Esau, of course. And here he betakes himself to the same tried method, and it sped well. Which leads to the third point on the outline, the making ready for mealtime. The making ready for mealtime. And then within that, Benjamin is brought down with his brothers. In verse 15, our text reads, So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. These nine brothers bring these three items that their father had laid out for them and brought them down to Egypt. You can only imagine the conversations that were being said, or really the lack of conversations that were happening, that the brothers had on the way to this dreaded place, on the way to Egypt. Would God hear the prayer of their father? We can see in our mind's eye Judah keeping a jealous watch over Benjamin. You see, repentance is such a beautiful, such a life-changing thing. Such a change of heart that produces such a hatred for those very sins that were its favorites. Judah was unrecognizable in chapter 43 when compared to chapter 37. And it's the same for anyone of us in Christ. This leads us to the second point. The brothers to dine with Joseph. The brothers to dine with Joseph. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. See, when Joseph saw Benjamin, it was no doubt a relief, but it's virtually impossible that Benjamin would have been left behind. If you remember, Simeon was still held, in, held as a hostage by Joseph, and the brothers needed food. So this was the only alternative that they had. So Joseph knew that they would come. But he sees Judah, the one who sold him to the Midianites, now as the personal escort of Benjamin to Egypt. So phase one of Joseph's plan is complete. Now he moves to phase two. And as Martin Luther says, it seems that Joseph saw Benjamin from afar off, for they gathered at the place where the foreigners were accustomed to buy food. Therefore, Joseph commanded his steward to take them into the home and prepare dinner for them. The brothers, to be sure, were using the journey to plan out what they were going to say and how they were going to say it. Sort of like a mental chess match. If the Lord of the land says this, we'll say that. If he uses harsh language, Gad is better at talking, or maybe Naphtali, we'll have them talk instead. That's one of the ways we try to deal with stressful situations. Sort of plan in advance what, plan in advance what you're going to say, trying to have some semblance of control. But all of that goes out the window because Joseph already has plans for them. Which takes us to letter C, the brother's anticipatory defense. The brother's anticipatory defense. If you look at verse 17, 
And we read the next several verses. It says, so the man did, and the man here is the steward. So the man did, as Joseph said, and brought them into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we were being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. Verse 19, so they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, O my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we've brought it back in our hand. Verse 22, we have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Uh, Things weren't going according to plan for the brothers. Joseph's servant obeyed his master and he singled out the brothers one by one, pulling them to himself. And on any other circumstance, this might have felt like a distinguished honor. But remember, with the, the guilt that the brothers were experiencing for the money in the sacks and Joseph, honor and privilege weren't the words that came to mind. But fear and foreboding would have been. You see them asking among themselves, would this Lord of the land become incensed as what was perceived as theft? And I get that because the text says that the brothers were saying this. They said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks. That's why he's getting us. That's why he's singling us out. And in light of this fear and tormented conscience, the brothers try to proactively anticipate any ill will towards them by trying to explain the situation to the steward. And notice where this all takes place. It's at the entrance of the house. They haven't yet gone in. The entrance is like this gaping hole that they're afraid to go into. Look back at verse 18. It says, The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, We are being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us. It's as if the brothers were expecting a guard to jump out behind the door or come out of nowhere and take them captive. So they were a little bit afraid to go in. and So they tried to talk to the steward before going in. We see them nervously walking up behind the steward, looking at the ground. Their mind's a whirlwind. The steward motions with his hand to come inside, and the brothers hesitate, and they seek to explain the situation. But you see, the next words and the next actions of the steward would have been a breath of fresh air to these brothers, whose nerves were by this point, no doubt, spent. Letter D, the brothers receive comforting news. The brothers receive comforting news. Verse 23, the steward speaking again, he said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasures in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So comfort after comfort flows to these brothers from the steward. The first comfort you see, the steward says to them, Be at ease. He doesn't say anything harsh to them. He speaks comfortingly to them and says, Be at ease. The next comfort is similar. He says, don't be afraid. And then he does something else that the brother's ears would have perked up. The third thing he mentions is the true God. He mentions the God of Jacob and how he was the one who's given the brothers treasure in their sacks. The steward credits God's providence that brought them that money. Which I think is interesting that the steward would even know about the God of the Hebrews seems to indicate that the steward had some knowledge of the true God from his master Joseph, which I think is an interesting side point. Joseph, who was faithful in Potiphar's house, he was faithful with Potiphar's wife, he was faithful with the jailer, with Pharaoh, 
was nonetheless still faithful to his true master, Yahweh, and maintained his walk with him, even among the flurry of busyness and activity as the second in command. And so there's no excuse for us not to. The fourth comfort is that he mentions that he has their money. He has their money. As Luther says, so far as he was concerned, so far as the steward was concerned, he had received their money and they owed him nothing. But then the fifth comfort beats them all. He doesn't just verbally comfort them. He demonstrates that by bringing Simeon out to them. This must have made the brothers so happy. But we come to our last point, the preparation for the meal with Joseph. The preparation for the meal with Joseph. Verse 24, Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Far from the expectations of the brothers, the steward shows them some good old ancient hospitality. Far from assigning men to fall on them, he gives them water to wash their feet. Far from stealing their donkeys, he feeds their donkeys. I'm sure the brothers were significantly relieved, but not completely. Why would this Lord of the land invite us to his house? What's, what's going to happen to us at noontime? Right now it's great, but what's going to happen in a few hours? The brothers were then busy preparing their gift, their gift of balm and honey and nuts and myrrh that Jacob had sent down. So they were busy with that, but I'm sure they were also trying to formulate any earthly reason why this Lord of the land would have them over for lunch. And next week we'll learn by Jeff what happened to the brothers. But as we conclude our text this morning in Genesis 43, I want to remind you what Steve Saint said at the beginning of our lesson. He said, God planned my dad's death. See, he understood that God was in absolute control of all circumstances and God has planned all circumstances to accomplish things that would not, could not be accomplished otherwise. Jacob, for example, had to give up his precious son, Benjamin. The brothers had to risk their lives to get food from Egypt. They all were in desperate straits due to the famine. And yet God was accomplishing his magnificent purposes through each and every event. See, if Jacob didn't relinquish Benjamin... Think of this, the brothers wouldn't have returned to Egypt. If the brothers didn't return to Egypt, they would have all died out, including Judah and his sons that you see in chapter 38. And if Judah and his sons died, there would be no Messiah. And if no Messiah, no salvation. So in terms of application, if you're in Christ, number one, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. See, there was no way for Jacob to know all the ins and outs of what God was doing in his life. But God had made promises to Jacob, and we see those throughout the book of Genesis. And he could trust God that if he so desired, the Lord of the land would be favorable towards him. Number two, God uses trials to help us part with those things that have become idols in our hearts, even if it's painful and it's for our good. No doubt Joseph and Benjamin had more affection in Jacob's heart than they ought to have had. And number three, our ultimate goal should never be comfort, but trusting and obeying God. You see, God uses and even has planned hard events in our lives to put His power on display in our weakness, to make us more dependent on Him, to make us long more for heaven, and to delight more in Christ as our chief good. So may we serve and trust our Lord Jesus Christ no matter the cost, 
knowing, as the song says, that the calm will be the better for the storm that we endure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use your word, which is like a fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock, and that you would do the great physician work that only you can do in purging our hearts from sin, cleansing us from pride and iniquity, making us more conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, help us all to love your word more, to love Christ more, to be enraptured with his glory more, and to serve you, Jesus, no matter the cost. As the days get darker and darker, help us to cling to your word and to exalt you, Jesus, with everything that we do and say and think. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen.